0: Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Pink Sheets Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingeri, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, I'm joined by senior editor Sue Sutter and executive editor Nielsen Hobbs. Today is March 11th, 2022, and the push to reauthorize the FDA's user fee programs is picking up speed now. We saw two bills this week that would reform the accelerated approval pathway, which seem intended for the huge package likely to be passed this summer. One bill came from Democrat Frank Pallone, who chairs the House Energy and Commerce Committee. The headline from his bill was that it would set expiration dates on accelerated accelerated approvals granted after the bill's enactment. An accelerated approval would expire a year after the target date for study completion. But that could be avoided if the confirmatory trial verifies the predicted effect or adequate progress is made. The second bill, which Republicans wrote, would not add expiration dates, but would instead expand eligibility for the pathway. The primary option for accelerated approval is, is an effect on a surrogate endpoint that is reasonably likely to predict clinical benefit. The GOP bill would add a second option, an agency determination of the safety and effectiveness of the product based on the known benefit risk profile in the intended population. So obviously this is only the beginning of the story, an Energy and Commerce Committee hearing is coming up where this and other bills will be discussed, and you know the sausage making will begin, so to speak. But for the panel, I'm curious where you think we go from here on these. Um, obviously, there you know industry may like one over the other, or may like some ideas in one bill and some in another. So, do you, wh- how do you think this is going to play out? Well, thanks,
1: Derek I think it's. Uh, um a little hard to predict, uh, just because uh, it often comes down to uh, the iter- idiosyncrasies of particular senators, given how closely divided the uh, the Senate is. And I don't uh, I don't know if any of the uh, the swing senators have particularly strong uh, feelings about uh, um, the accelerated approval pathway. So uh, um, I think that remains to be seen. Um, you know, I think it would be hard to imagine a User fee bill that uh, gets enacted this year without some kind of, you know, significant changes to its uh, approval. Whether those people were kind of pro-sponsor or uh, pro-sceptic, um, you might say, uh, in terms of uh, um, their uh, um, their approach to sort of, kind of what direction the pathway goes. But uh, um, it's really very interesting uh, um, uh, dueling visions of sort of kind of uh, how the pathway could evolve in the two in the two bills that you wrote about this week.
0: I guess I, you know. I keep thinking about expiration dates, and you know that 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 idea, and that obviously stems a little bit from you know modeled similarly to the the pathway, the conditional approval pathway in Europe, where they require an annual renewal of the, um, of the approval. You this would kind of do the same thing a little bit, but uh, I mean, it, I, I guess I, I'm wondering if that, you know, that idea has a, uh, you know, what, what kind of shot that idea has at becoming law in this case. And I know, you know, we, it's hard to handicap these things. And these, this could change next week, if something, you know, or even the next couple <laughs> hours. But, you know, but I mean, I mean, the, I mean, let's be honest, the, the, the pharma industry has a really good lobby. They're very powerful. Is that, I mean, are they, and they obviously don't like that, so, you know, do you think that this could that could do you think that has a decent chance of getting enacted that part of it?
1: I'm a little skeptical about that. You know, FDA seems um, hesitant about that. You know, we've seen uh, 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 when they've been on, been on the Hill, they've said sort of flat out we don't need, uh, um, you know, a conditional uh, marketing pathway they obviously sort of, kind of could uh, evolve their position with now a uh, you know a confirmed commissioner who you know had to pledge that he would uh, you know look into uh, accelerated approval changes in order to get uh, um to get confirmed and uh you know sort of as the uh, um the Biden administration sort of, kind of perhaps uh, um you know thinks uh thinks more about sort of, kind of uh um what they uh what they want to see out of uh, um, you know their uh, you know perhaps uh, um, last remaining months of uh, congressional uh, um, majorities for uh, um, for Democrats they could for sort of kind of uh, envision sort of kind of a push on uh, this or uh, you know that or the other thing so uh, um you know it's certainly possible I think I would grade it as uh, less likely than through sort of kind of than the um you know some of the other aspects of that bill that sort of would be for sort of kind of uh, you know uh, re- requirements for uh, starting trials or for finishing trials or for uh, um, you know uh, you know more uh, expedited withdrawal of a uh, product that sort of failed to prove uh, um, benefit and you know it's not unlike the uh, um, you know this sort of kind of the automatic withdrawal that you're talking about but it uh, um, is not quite the same. Uh, um, you know, sort of kind of nuclear trigger that sort of that uh, um, this uh, um, this legislation seems to envision, even though there are, you know, are sort of, as you uh, mentioned in your stories, sort were of kind of, you know, ways that FDA could sort of, kind of uh, you know, shade that and, uh, you know, uh, interpret that to, uh, you know, create loopholes when they really wanted to.
2: Yeah, I mean, FDA has said, or at least CEDAR has said, we don't think we need a conditional approval pathway, but certainly a number of FDA officials over the years have said, it needs to. There needs to be an easier way to get a drug off the market when it fails its confirmatory trial, and um, I'm not sure that either of those bills out there right now really does that. I mean, the Democratic bill attempts to make a stab at it, but I don't know how effective it really would be.
0: Yeah, and and something that it, you know the the Republican bill just kind of leaves the you know expedited withdrawal. Portion of the the law that describes accelerated approval unchanged, which is you know really just kind of sets in motion the the process we know of now, which is anything but expedited.
2: Exactly, uh, <laughs> it's a It drives me nuts when they when they use that term.
0: <laughs> and, and we've heard over and over again that we need they want a way to get these be able to do this quickly, but you know even even the Democratic bill says, you know, you have to allow no, you have to allow notice, you have to allow comments. And, you know, you you know, you're thinking maybe you could get that done if it was just in a written form and there was no hearing and no appeals and so forth. I mean, maybe you could get that done in, you know, 90 days. I don't know. I'm making that up. But it it, yeah, it seems like, you know, with just making withdrawal something that would be, you know, a lot of people would consider expedited would still be difficult even if you got everything you wanted.
2: <laughs> I think they'd have a lot of trouble trying to get away from offering a public hearing because I think in some of these therapeutic areas, you'd have a, a lot of outrage among patients if FDA is, is being seen as overly heavy-handed and trying to get a drug withdrawn from the market.
0: The other interesting thing about both of these bills is that they were they were trying to Set up agreements between the sponsor and FDA, or opportunities for meetings and so forth. To, I mean, in the Republican bill's case, they want an entire an opportunity for like an entire development clinic development plan, where you could, you know, start from you know pre-application all the way through post-approval, and get get some clarity on at least uh, at least that's this is the the idea is to get some clarity on how you would meet the requirements, what the requirements are going to be, how FDA views all that, and then, you know, okay, off you go. And then, you know, and you'll know in advance kind of what the confirmatory trial is going to look like before you start, and which is, you know, and that kind of thing. Um, I could see that, I mean, Matt, you talked about some, you know, kind of thing, bits and pieces maybe that, you know, or some kind of form form of this that could end up in the final bill. I mean, something like that seems like so that the thing that both sides could get behind and might be kind of easy to agree to.
1: Yeah, our uh, um, uh, colleague Mike McCann from uh, Provision uh, Policy had a uh, uh, interesting uh, observation in the, um, a story this week uh, for us that uh, talked about how uh, um, it, it you know, it, it's sort of something that sort of both, both sides seem to want, that sort of kind of skeptics want. Um, you know at least the trials were started uh, um before uh, um, uh, uh, approval and uh, you know sponsors want to uh, you know have a, uh, have a clear path as well and so uh you know that's where kind of where sort of perhaps the uh, the Venn diagram of uh, um of uh, desires for kind of overlaps in terms of we're sort of kind of getting some more uh, um more uh, advanced planning, uh, done, whether it's for kind of to, uh, um, uh, to create, uh, regulatory certainty or to, uh, you know, to create, uh, um, you know, uh, potency of, uh, um, uh, the, the meaning that it's for kind of, it does have to be confirmed. Uh, um, that could be something that's for kind of could be, uh, uh could be the path forward for a, a consensus piece of legislation. The,
0: the only question and, I would, I'm sorry, Sue, go ahead.
2: Sure. Um, The Oncology Center of Excellence has started taking this approach. Um, A while back, um, they decided, we want to hear sponsors' entire plan for an accelerated approval. We don't want to hear piecemeal, this is how we're going to get our accelerated approval, this is a study we're going to do to confirm the benefit. They want sponsors to come into them with an entire plan on how this is going to work. And so I could see something along those lines being codified. You know, I think it's the details would have to be hammered out in terms of when this happens and, you know, what sort of meetings have to take place and that sort of thing.
0: Yeah, I mean, to some extent, PADUFA 7 is doing a little bit of that already by allowing the post-marketing or requiring the post-marketing discussions to start earlier during the review. But you know, during the review might not be early enough, you know, for, you know, in some of those, ca- in some cases, I mean, my only question would be is if you set up, a you set up a whole plan and then what do you do when something doesn't go to plan, which invariably will happen pretty much every time, you know, do you, you know, if, if not necessarily a trial failing, but what if you have to make protocol changes? What if you, you know, what if there are other, you you have trouble with enrollment or, uh, you know, there's other things going on, you know, and FDA's made or maybe FDA's thinking about, you know, the type of evidence that they need or, you know, the, and we've seen this happen with, with um, you know, a lot too, where, another product comes in or another trial reports out and that changes how they think about an entire class. And what if you're in the middle and you have this plan already? What do you go back and change the plan? Do you submit saying you we had this agreement, we made this plan and I'm doing things the way to my plan and, you know, FDA should honor that. I mean, you know, it's one of the things to be worked out would be how they how they would handle that, how both sides would handle that.
2: Well, certainly being caught in the middle of a standard of care uh, change is a risk that any sponsor considering accelerated approval is taking, and I don't think that's really widely recognized, at least by the investment community. Um, I would say that whatever plan they come up with, nothing is set in stone, um, You know, they may have to go back to the drawing board. or They may have to come up as part of this planning process. They may have to come up with contingencies. Okay, if a new standard of care enters an X date, what will we do then? You know, I mean, that's, Mm -hmm. it seems like a lot of work, um, but I think it's some forethought that has not been happening up to this point in terms of what sponsors and, and even the agency have been planning for.
0: I mean, we saw it with special protocol assessments, and this was several years ago. Where there was a lot of complaining about that, where there were a couple of cases where something changed mid, you know, mid development, and they and the FDA kind of had to go back or make changes that didn't didn't go along with the original agreement, and you know that certainty went away. And you just wonder if accelerated approval is a lot used a lot more than special protocol assessments are. So you wonder if. <laughs> How, how that how that goes how that how that comes out, especially you know in, in those situations
1: that's a that's a great uh, um observation uh, Derek, uh, you know we've certainly seen on accelerated approval uh, trials that have seen slow enrollment and um you know for uh, whatever reason and they they can't meet the agreed-upon deadlines and uh, um you know it's uh sure frustrating for both sponsor and uh, um uh, FDA alike that, uh, you know, sometimes the, uh, you know, the, the science just doesn't work out the, uh, the way you pencil it into your, uh, your schedule and, uh, you know, uh, how do you create a uh, legislative and uh, uh, policy framework that kind of both uh, gives maximum uh, f- uh, flexibility and, uh, um, you know, uh, maximum surety at the, at the same time seems a, a, um, a real challenge that Congress is wrestling with.
0: Yeah, and speaking of challenges, we also saw this week that uh, Oregon has applied for a Medicaid waiver that would allow to exclude coverage of accelerated approval drugs, even if the required rebates are provided. Um, I know this this is worried this worries a lot of people because a lot of treatments for rare diseases and other conditions come through accelerated approval, and they don't want to give states any kind of, uh, you know, precedent or incentive to not cover them. I mean, this you know, and to a certain extent, this kind of plays with the the reform accelerated approval reform legislation that that's being considered because the goal to avoid the Medicaid problems would be to confirm benefit as, as soon as possible. So, you know, all of this seems to be kind of trying to incentivize sponsors to complete the confirmatory trials, it seems like.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely uh, um, it. And it's uh, um, part and parcel with the whole, uh, drug pricing debate that's for kind of uh, if uh, um you know uh, states you know Medicaid programs thought that the uh, um the drugs were uh you know fundamentally worth the uh the cost they wouldn't probably be quibbling over uh, um the uh the, the the approval pathway and so it's uh, um you know something that's for for pharma, pharma needs to keep in mind that's for kind of the um the 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 macro issue as for kind of how much uh, um, this has uh, um, has on a budgetary impact is uh, um, you know having spillover effects as we're kind of to uh, you know every aspect of how they uh, develop their products.
0: Yeah, it's a very interesting issue, and in, you know with the, the hearings and now the the legislative process coming up, uh, we'll we'll certainly be watching this, and I su- I suspect we'll be talking about it a lot more you know in the in the coming weeks. Next, we're going to take a look at the FDA's patient-focused drug development program, a largely successful effort to further incorporate patient voices into decision-making. Sue, you looked at how the program has evolved over the years, particularly the meetings.
2: Yeah, so this was based on a um, panel discussion at the Biopharma Congress um, recently, and um, there was a lot of discussion among um, patient advocacy groups and um, their representatives and FDA talking about how the the format for these PFDD meetings has really stood the test of time in terms of the questions that they ask the patients about the most significant health effects and daily impacts on their condition, how their condition has changed over time, current approaches to disease management, and what they would like to see in in an ideal treatment. However, the the meetings are also evolving. They've started adding in uh, questions about surrogate endpoints and accelerated approvals. And if, this, if you started in a trial and the trial ended up resulting in an accelerated approval, would you continue in the extension phase of the trial? So it's kind of interesting how these have evolved. <laughs> and it's, you know, there's that interplay again with the accelerated approval. Can't seem to get away from that. Um, <laughs> And then also kind of um, another big concern of the the patient advocates is they just they there's not a lot of transparency in their minds as to how these PFDD meetings and the information that comes out of that are being used by the FDA in its regulatory decision making. And this was an issue that was flagged um, by an external consultants report um, over the summer. That they want the agency to more clearly explain how it uses uh, patient experience data in its drug and biologic approval decisions.
0: Yeah, I, I like you, Sue. I was around when this program was created way back in was like 2012. Yeah, it seems like forever ago. Um, but um, and FDA let you know, designed, invited the people and led and entirely did the, all the meetings themselves in the early years, the first five year, four or five years, I believe. And then it kind of evolved into where they said, patient groups could do their own and we'll have FDA staff there to listen and then we'll produce, you produce your own report and we'll take it and look through it and et cetera. Um, d- is there any chance of FDA going back to that or at least, you know, st- leading their own meetings? I know they still do one or, you know, the occasional one, but it's it's inconsistent now.
2: Yeah, they still are leading meetings every now and then, but it's prime. They're primarily run now those meetings by um, external groups, patient advocacy groups, and I don't think you're gonna see um, that dynamic change. I think FDA set the stage, they created the template, and they've handed off to the patient community by and large, and the, the patient community has taken this up. I think I said in my story, there have been about 50 externally led meetings to date, wow. which is a pretty healthy number. Um, yeah, now, these are these are a big lift for patient groups, you know, they're, they're not cheap to put on. Um, and you know, they produce these voice of the patient reports, which apparently, you know, I've read them before, they have great information in them. But again, that's why they, they want to know better how FDA is using this report. Um, one patient advocate I quoted in the story said, you know, you want to make sure you're getting a return on your investment for these meetings. And so it would help to, to have more transparency around that.
1: Sue, do you think that might be sort of what's, uh, driving in part this sort of kind of this in- increased discussion of, uh, the you know technical aspects of approval and the you know uh, you know circuit markers and uh, like that that sort kind of patients don't just kind of want a uh, a forum, but they are going to want to, you know a real sort of kind of uh, um you know down to uh, um, down to business approach of uh, sort of kind of what. Uh, what it is they're doing with FDA and these uh, in these meetings and that means getting uh, you know getting treatments and and, uh, and cures uh, um you know in the hands of patients and that's sort of why they're focused on the these more uh, technical mechanisms as opposed to sort of kind of the disease discussions stuff those were sort of kind of the perhaps more the original vision
2: yeah I mean they definitely have gotten more into these you know the, the regular the regulatory policy points and the and the technical discussions as you say um I don't think, you're going to see them move away from the disease and and symptom discussions because that's really what these meetings are at the heart of them but i do think um you know a better evaluation of what patients are willing to risk for a certain amount of benefit you know i think that does inform fda's decision making though
0: yeah and, and people i mean the- at least early on, the the meetings were were targeted at diseases that they didn't the FDA didn't know much about and didn't have a whole lot of experience with. So they needed patients to tell them what to look for. And, um, you know, going forward, you wonder if, I mean, they're probably never going to run out of diseases that they ever that they don't have any experience with, but you know, or don't have a lot of experience with. But um, you know, you wonder going forward to, you know how, how do you how do you better indicate that you look you consider patient experience data when you're doing a review? I know one of the ideas is to have a, a actual physical place in the documents that says, "Here's the patient experience data I, I looked at," and you could just pencil in. I read the voice of the patient report from this date. I read this. I did that. I did that. We had a meeting. We did this. But short of saying I did it. You know, is that going to I just wonder if that's going to satisfy people or if at some point they're going to, you know, down the road, they're going to say like, well, you said you did this and all the data points to this this direction, but you went the other direction. So you want you wonder if that if that's going to, you know, well, what the next step is, I guess, maybe after we start, you know, you know, doc, you know, uh, documenting the how we use the patient information.
2: Yeah, I mean, right now there's a template on patient experience data. Basically, the reviewers will check off whether or not such data in certain categories was included with the application, but it doesn't give you a detailed explanation of how that factored into FDA's review. I feel like I have read at least one or two sets of review documents where they have pointed out to statements that were made at a at a pfdd meeting but um you know i think certainly there's an area for more clarity there
1: mm-hmm. yeah you're certainly uh, you know seeing a uh, um fda interest and uh, you know uh, um i would say uh, um congressional uh, push on uh, on this and uh, just like we've seen uh, more and more Instructions in uh, um, legislation and uh, um, Padufa agreements about uh, rule world evidence. I think we may sort of be entering an era, perhaps with PaduFA eight in uh, um, five years, uh, that uh, you know there might be sort of more explicit instructions to uh, you know include uh, you know the uh, the patient-focused uh, factors as part of uh, um, decision making, or at least sort of you know weigh it in a uh, um, more formal way than than we're already seeing in the in the uh, um, in the reviews.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting topic and uh you know, one that's certainly not going away. And uh, you know, we'll be we'll be we'll be watching it uh you know going forward and and you know certainly reading more of those voice in the voice of the patient reports, I assume.
2: Padufa eight. I can't wait.
0: Yeah, we haven't even got to Padufa seven yet.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to uh, to uh, induce panic there, folks.
0: <laughs> Finally today we're going to look at the COVID treatment uh mal- Malnupiravir, I almost got it, and it's fact sheet. Matt, you took a closer look at how the, uh, the label can dictate, can dictate access to the product.
1: Well, uh, absolutely yes and I think we should uh, before we begin the discussion uh, um perhaps agree to use the uh the easier nomenclature that uh, uh the some administration officials have adopted uh, Pfizer pill and Merck pill so they don't have to <laughs> stumble over the uh the syllables anymore but uh, but yes this appears to be uh um uh you know uh, uh, the first if not uh, um one of the first uh, um you know I, I couldn't find anything else uh, um that has the uh the term uh, um, accessible in its uh, um, not quite labeled because this is a uh, um, uh, an EU uh, an EUA, so the uh, um, emergency use uh, authorization fact sheet. but uh, it was just a uh, you know, I thought sort of an elegant turn of phrase for uh, what FDA was trying to do it was saying this for kind of uh, you know, um, this product seems to work. It has uh, um, you know uh, um, a fairly uh, lengthy list of uh, um, you know potential side effects. Uh, but if uh, uh, there's anything else you can take that uh, um, we think works better, uh, uh, take that. But uh, um, this is still an option for you if you don't have any other options. And uh, um, you know that's certainly a, a good English, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, use of the uh, um, the word. However, in uh, um, Washington speak. Uh, Accessible is often a proxy for pricing. You know, when I asked them about this, FDA said that they definitely did not include pricing as a as a consideration when they when they did that. And so, you know, just we should probably kind of take it in the context that FDA is using it, which you know, which means it's a you know, sort of a last line. Item, especially if are given uh, uh, how they ended up approving it for kind of uh, reviewing it for so long, and uh, you know, sort of uh, uh, in my mind, very deliberately uh, approving it after the Pfizer pill, uh, um, although shortly after, so it wasn't like they were uh, um, uh, really disinterested in having it uh, um, available. So, or I, I'm sorry, I'm saying approval. I meant, I meant authorizing. It's uh, um, all these. Uh, um, all these months in, uh, um, you know, I should, uh, um, should know better than, uh, um, uh, I guess we're, I guess we're years in now, aren't we? <laughs> should know better than, uh, than to use the wrong, uh, term of art there. But, uh, um, but yeah, it was, uh, um, you know, a, uh, um, obviously a, uh, very politically, uh, um, uh, um, sensitive uh, word i guess i also uh, use the, the phrase potent in the story and uh, um it's just sort of kind of funny how different words take on uh, um different meanings in different contexts and uh, um, you know they all sort of kind of uh, came together in this label
0: so yeah we we, we we know that you know off the top fda is not supposed to consider pricing in decision making period that's their that's their mantra that's been their mantra for years now but we've seen at least with the, in the generics context, we've seen kind of that kind of getting that line kind of get muddied a little bit um, in terms of, you know, how they approach generics and getting more generics onto the market, you know, for to, you know, in, improve like affordability and, and so forth. Um, do you feel like the FDA is kind of getting more comfortable with, you want to call it access, if you know the the that you know that fancy word, or 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 drug pricing as a concept. You know now that they've you know now that they've put this in a label or in, or a fact sheet, not a label.
1: Well, I think you know FDA's sort are of kind of uh, um, you know th- thinks about it in multiple ways, and uh, you know their their opinions change based on the circumstances and through sort of kind of how uh, um, how things have worked out. Uh, you know we obviously saw. Um, uh, uh, the the Gottlieb uh, um, uh, uh, FDA I want to say Gottlieb administration I don't think that's quite uh, quite how you phrase it but the uh, the the Gottlieb agency uh, um, you know sort of be very explicit about this. we're kind of you know we're uh, we're trying to approve a lot of generic drugs that's going to have a uh, um, you know a uh, an impact on uh, um, drug pricing and that's uh, um, we think that's part of our uh, um, our uh, um, our, uh, our edict there to uh, to uh, to work on that uh, um, on that issue and then uh, you know a couple months ago we saw um, uh, FDA uh, kind of pivot in the oncology space and say uh, you know what uh, these. Uh, um, these products uh, uh, these PD ones from uh, uh, China, I know which were kind of uh, expressed a little enthusiasm about uh, enthusiasm about them earlier uh, you know in a pricing context uh, you know now uh, we're gonna uh, uh, not think about pricing when we think about those uh, those issues so so they can sort of kind of go uh, um you know it sort of kind of uh, um, goes up and up uh, up and down and, uh, depending on the context so uh, you know Fda has always kind of held that uh, um, held that in their their uh, um, their in their heads I think and how they how they express it and use it depends on the particular context of a product and here obviously I don't think they were thinking about pricing obviously these medicines remain free for US patients so that's not an issue for them there but um, it's a um it is a um it is a, it is a term that sort kind of has uh, taken on this pricing meaning and it's just uh, um, you know something that sort of uh, um, was a um, was a, a an interesting uh, um, a way of using it in a non-pricing context, I thought
2: so should they have said if other treatments are not available
1: <laughs> i guess uh, i guess that's a sort of an english uh, synonym uh, maybe uh, um maybe that's uh, um would have uh, would have saved me from running the story if they had done that i guess
0: <laughs> <laughs> now well, one thing that we you know another question i wondered about was you know if they go for the full approval they try, turn the ewa into an approval into a full approval and make it accessible you know, uh, after the pandemic is over officially, would would you expect that kind of language to remain in the put to be put in the actual label?
1: I don't see why not. You know, we've we've obviously sort of seen some uh, um, backtracking already about uh, um, some sort of kind of more uh, uh, politically sensitive uh, um, uh, EUA uh, language. Uh, you know, Derek, you've written about the. Uh, um, the uh instructions that are going to take uh, um, the uh, the race of the patient into uh, um, into account uh, um, in certain contexts to to, uh, to weigh whether or not they might be at high risk and um, FDA you know while not saying that was a mistake has sort kind of changed their uh, um uh, the way they labeled that sort of more kind of linked to uh, um Link to a website that discusses that in some context in their in their more recent labeling. So you could see you know perhaps this shift to to availability or you know some other sort of kind of word that doesn't sort of carry the 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 political political power of accessible. So. You know, uh, uh, I did not get into my story, and I uh, would be curious if anyone uh, knows or kind of how did that how that word uh, got uh, um, got to be associated with uh, um, with pricing. Obviously. Uh, um, you know, the, uh, the generic trade firms, uh, accepted it as something. And, uh, you know, I, I wrote about in the stories for kind of the, even the, uh, uh, pharma seems to think it's, uh, um, worth getting their, uh, um, name associated with it when you do sort of certain, uh, Google searches, although not anymore. Once I asked pharma about that, the, I've not been able to reproduce that, uh, that Google search. So, uh, um, so who knows, but, uh, um, the, uh, um, you know, it is a uh, um, it is a uh, um, you know a meaningful word that uh, again I don't think your sort of, patients or physicians are kind of probably think about it in the same way that they're kind of uh, um, people that uh, you know spend their days uh, uh, reading white papers and uh, talking to lobbyists might uh, might think about it. But uh, um, you know, it. Uh, um, it's, it's something that I, I wouldn't be surprised if it ended up uh, um, being in there now honestly you know by the time you know if and when this work uh, um, drug uh, um, you know gets a uh, gets an NDA and sue's uh, an excellent story uh, that I uh, note in my piece talking about sort of kind of uh, FDA is uh, at the moment sort of uh, pretty skeptical that uh, um, that there's enough data to uh, justify a, uh, um, a regular approval uh, uh, from the uh, um you know, from the Merck pill. But uh, when it does, by that point, I would assume that the Pfizer pill will be much more widely available. Uh, and so it's not going to have the same uh, salience that it does right now. Because, you know, one of the big issues right now is this where kind of people seem to think that the uh, the Pfizer pill is better, just given through its, uh, it seems to be uh, more efficacious and, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, fewer side effects, although it certainly has its own uh, um, dosing complications as we've written about uh, um, but it, it is just uh, as a uh, as a manufacturing uh, issues there's just not as much of it around right now and so if you uh, um, you know if you have COVID and uh, um, are at high risk uh, you know chances are you'll have um, access to the uh, um, to the Merck pill much more uh, easily than you would to the uh, the Pfizer pill. And so, uh, by the time this kind going to end up on a regular label, perhaps that's not going to be an issue in terms of sort of that, uh, um, you know, sort of the, uh, the actual product availability. So, it's not going to be uh, um, something they're worrying about uh, putting in, inst- in instructions.
0: Yeah, it's very interesting. It's an issue that people don't think about, uh, you know, too often. So, it's a really, really, really interesting story there. Well, thank you, Derek. Mm-hmm. Well, that's all for this week. For more, check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com. You can also find this in previous podcast episodes on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Spotify by searching for Pharma Intelligence. And if you're so inclined, feel free to give us a review. Thanks again for listening to the Pink Sheet Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingary with Sue Sutter and Matt Hobbs. Stay safe, get vaccinated, and we'll see you next time.